All right, everybody, we're going to get started in just a moment. So if you make your way to your seats, we'll get started in just a moment. My Savior left his throne above, exchanged his wealth for Welcome, everybody. Good morning. So glad to see you here. So nice to be together again. Um, the Lord kept us safe, as far as I know, last week and brought us back together again today, but missed gathering with my church family, and uh, I'm glad to be together this Lord's Day with you. If you would, take your bulletin and take a look at some of the upcoming events Calendar on the back lets you know about some things going on. This week we have grace groups and we gather throughout the area here, community, with uh, different, in different homes and different groups. If you're not a part of a grace group, we invite you to get a part of one and join one. Maybe just visit one to see how you like it. But this is, these are ways that we can more uh, effectively and in a more minute fashion, get together, bear one another's burdens, love on each other. And so uh, we invite you to get a part of a grace group, and they will be gathering um, throughout the community this week on different days. And so we can find one for you that works with your schedule, but we'd love for you to get a part of one of those grace groups. Um, And then on the 3rd, coming up Saturday, we have our uh, 1689 confession class going through the chapter on creation. Looking forward to that. And so that'll be Saturday morning um, at our new location in the right outside the square in Columbia there. Um, Men's basketball after the worship service on that next Sunday and then CGC women on the 6th, uh, assuming the men don't need tended to with all their injuries uh, the couple of days prior. So uh, that is what we have coming up. Um, We invite you to take part of those things. If you are visiting with us, we are so glad to have you. Thank you for joining with us today uh, as we worship the Lord together. If you would fill out the Connect card that is on the top, scan that QR code. That'll take you to a link where you can let us know of your visit here today so we could say hi and welcome you and keep record of that. Um, And if Covenant Grace is your church home, We would invite you to take part, jump in, in serving and giving and investing into this body of believers. Um, You can do so at those QR codes there as well. And we always do so from a place of resting in Christ, knowing what he has done for us. We don't serve out of guilt. We serve out of gratitude. And we do so giving as well. And so we worship him in those ways. If you have any trouble with the app or with any of those QR codes, as always, please let us know. Um, Technology is always great when it works, and when it works is the key. So, um, well, let's move into our worship service today, and I invite you to hear God call you to worship through his word. I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which says, The Lord fed your father's manna in the wilderness, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So come, church, worship Christ 
the living word and feed upon him this morning, the bread of life. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Christ, you are the image of the invisible God. You are the firstborn from the dead and you are the head of your body, the church. May your glory be seen in our presence now. And as our king, may we welcome your procession into this place for you deserve all glory and honor and praise. And what we bring to you is imperfect, but what you gave to us was your perfect righteousness and your forgiveness and your mercy. And we worship you today in spirit and in truth. And as we bow before you in our hearts in humble adoration, out of gratitude, bless our worship, bless your spirits working through your word and the sacrament. And may you be honored and glorified in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to hear God's law as his will for your life. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ from the book of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and chapter 6 and a portion of chapter 7. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. God's law is perfect. It is holy. And we should call each other to obedience to this law. But as we know, none of us do this perfectly. And so we confess our sin each and every week to remind us of where we stand and who God is, that we fall short of his perfect standard and glory. And so I invite you to stand with me and pray this prayer of confession that we have printed for you on the top left hand of the, uh, the liturgy there on the inside page. But before we pray and confess our sin in this way, let's pause for a moment and consider privately areas in which we have sinned against God, and then we will confess corporately and receive the assurance of our pardon in the gospel of Christ. Let's consider that, and then we'll pray corporately in just a moment. In consideration of this sin, would you pray with me? Almighty God, we are sinners. Your word and our hearts confirm that to us. We have done things you have forbidden and left undone things you have commanded. We have not loved you with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. As judge of the whole earth, you would be just to condemn us. Yet, in your love, you sent Christ to bear the guilt of our sin and suffer our punishment. To him now we flee. 
Forgive us for his sake, and by your spirit, help us to live in the light of his sacrifice. Lives worthy of your name, judge us not according to our work, but according to your mercy in Jesus Christ. For in him we hope, and in him we come before you this day. Amen. Church, I'd like you to receive these words of comfort from our God In Colossians chapter 3, God's word says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the assurance that you have this morning. Everybody under the sound of my voice that has cast themselves on Christ for mercy and salvation. This is true of you. Not because anything special I have to say or anything special of any sort of office that I hold, for I don't. It is because of Christ and what he has done for us and his mercy that I can extend to you the forgiveness of your sins being sure because Christ is sure. What this passage reminds us of is that we have been raised with Christ. Surely we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but because he died for us, his death is now counted as our death. God would not be just to punish Christ on account of our sin and then punish us for the same sin. God is just and Christ died for that sin. The atonement is perfect and it is particular for your sin. And then as it says, we were raised with him so that our lives are hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God. You are protected You are safe, and that much is sure for you this day, church. And it is with that I say and remind you that that sin which you have confessed, you are completely and fully forgiven. Praise be to God. This is our comfort. Let's sing about it today and worship him with your voice. Lift your voices as we sing together, my one comfort.
Cast our hope in life and death. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess. Christ our hope in life and death. Now and ever we Christ, our hope in life and Savior left his throne above, exchanged his wealth for poverty. He took my hate and gave his love. All this and more he did for me. Because he chose the lowly way and bowed before his Father's will. I can with all assurance say My God is near and loves me still My God is near and loves me still He felt the storms of human pain He felt temptation He felt the tears of sorrow's rain All this and more he felt for me Because he knows my every strife And is acquainted with my grief I can't be shaken in this life The friend of sin with me, the friend of sinners walks with me. He kept his father's every word, the law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured, all this and His righteous life is mine, and all His merits now I own. I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. I am adopted, loved, and left his heavenly home his face was set on Calvary the steepest hill he climbed alone all this and more he did for me because he died once for all time and bore the curse 
Church, all is well because of what Christ has done for us. You can go and have a seat. And as you do, go and open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 9. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Patrick Crandall. I'm pastor here at Covenant Grace. And it's a joy to be together. Uh, We couldn't gather last week, and I hated it. Uh, So this is even better to be together this week and to be back in the Lord's Word together this morning. Matthew 9, we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15. Let's go ahead and give our attention to the word of the Lord this morning. Then the disciples of John came to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, what, it, what you do for us through it. You reveal yourself to us. You strengthen and nurture our faith. You give us comfort. You bring conviction. Uh, your spirit does all these things through your word. Uh, and so we are happy to be gathered together, to be under it. And now we ask for your help. We ask that you would be with my words, that they would be yours and not mine. Lord, you pray that you would bring them to bear by your spirit on each person here. That you would care for them exactly as they need. And Lord, we pray with total confidence that your word will not return void. You will accomplish exactly what you intend because you promised to do so. We entrust everything to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, so this passage begins with a question about fasting, something that's not super common for us or something we think about much. But this passage is about much more than fasting. It's about much more than fasting. It's about who Jesus is, our bridegroom. It's about how God is working out his redemptive plans in the world through this image of a wedding. And it's about how we live in this world in light of both of those things. Jesus, our bridegroom, and this wedding that's unfolding as a picture of God's plan of redemption unfolding in history. So to get into that, though, let's kind of recap how we got here, because these two verses are kind of right in the middle of kind of an ongoing story that we started last week. Last week, we saw Jesus call a tax collector named Matthew Tax collectors were utterly hated, but Jesus calls him to be his follower regardless. And on the heels of that, Matthew has him over along with his disciples to hang out with his friends from his old crowd, who are a bunch of hated sinners. So Jesus and his disciples are there hanging out with the outcast people that everybody hates. And the religious leaders show up, and they take this opportunity to undermine Jesus. And this is where we start to see this growing animosity between the religious leaders of Israel and Jesus and his disciples. That's going to just escalate as we continue to go through the gospel. And so they come to Jesus' disciples and say, why are you doing this? Like, this is not what decent, proper people do. They don't hang out. They don't share fellowship with sinners. And Jesus, of course, tells them that he came not for those who are self-righteous, but for those who are sick, for those who need a physician. He came to forgive sinners. 
So that's where we were last week. And today is a continuation, right? And we get another group kind of comes onto the scene, right? If we're picturing this on a stage, this whole other group of people came on the scene. We had the sinners, the tax collectors, Jesus and his disciples are eating with them. Then we had the religious, religious leaders looking on going, what's going on here? Now we get a new crew, the disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, so what's going on with these disciples, right? We, it's been a while since we saw John. We saw him earlier in Matthew 3 and 4. John was this forerunner to Jesus Christ, and he had followers just like Jesus' followers. And Jesus comes to him, and, and John rightly identifies him. And, hey, this is the guy. This is the guy I'm here preparing the way for. And a lot of John's disciples do go and follow Jesus, which was the right thing to do. Uh, John's disciples ask him, hey, everyone's leaving. He's like, yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. That's why I'm here. He's supposed to increase. I'm supposed to decrease. Right? But through all of this, apparently some did not leave. Some are still attached to John. But in the meantime, John's been arrested. Uh, He's confronted the king on some sin in his own life. And in response, he's been arrested and thrown in jail. And so there's disciples of John are just kind of out there. The guy they're following, their teacher, is in prison and they're trying to make sense of what's going on, right? John told them that this, this guy is, is the one, but they're watching him and his disciples, and then they're looking at the religious leaders of Israel. And the religious leaders of Israel, these are the people they grew up respecting, grew up thinking of as righteous, and their outward life, their outward practice looks a whole lot more like what John's disciples would have been doing too. But this looked familiar. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. John's disciples fasted too. They, they recognize this kind of piety. So they're kind of they're confused by what they're seeing. Right? On the one hand, there's these religious leaders in Israel who John, by the way, rebuked for a lot of things too. Right? But they look the way that these guys imagine piety and holiness look like, right? They're doing they're they're doing the fasting thing. But then you got Jesus and his disciples, and they're over here, not only not fasting, they're feasting with sinners. And this is not what they think righteousness and piety look like. And so they're trying to understand how to make sense of this. John said this is the guy, but he doesn't look like the picture we imagined of the guy. We expected it to look more like this. So the Pharisees fast. We fast. Why don't you guys fast? Why is this different? Well... Jesus gives an answer that's a little bit unusual at first. He just doesn't give a straight, plain forward one. He tells them a little bit of a parable. He gives them a little bit of a metaphor. And, but this metaphor is absolutely loaded with meaning. Because the real crux of the issue isn't fasting. Fasting, it matters. We're going to talk about it. But it's a very small thing compared to the underlying issue. And the underlying issue is that they did not understand who Jesus was, and they did not understand how God was working in the world. And this image of this wedding that Jesus paints out in this one verse shows us both of those things, especially when we zoom out and we see it in light of the rest of Scripture. This little sentence packs, it punches way above its weight when we see it in light of the rest of God's revelation. So let's look at verse 15 one more time, because this is where we're going to be for the rest of today. Jesus said to them, this is his answer, why don't you fast? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
right? So it seems like an odd answer, but in some ways it's a very spot-on answer because, for a few reasons. First of all, John has already talked about Jesus in this kind of language, right? When the disciples of John are leaving and going after Jesus, John talks about Jesus in this very language. We read this account in John 3. It says this, John 3, 26 through 30. John's disciples come to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves must bear witness with me that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of my, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So John paints out this picture. He's like, look, I'm not the groom, right? I've been here. I'm the best man. I've been getting things ready so when the groom shows up, everything's perfect for him. And when I see the bride delighting at the groom, I'm not jealous. This was the point, right? I was here to help make this happen. This is what I want to see. So he's already talked to his disciples about Jesus with this kind of picture in mind, this idea that Jesus is the bridegroom. But this picture gets much richer when we zoom out even farther and look at this imagery from Scripture more broadly, because it runs from the beginning to the end, this imagery of a wedding and of a bridegroom. In, old, in the Old Testament, there's language throughout that describes God as the bridegroom to his people. All right, just one example is Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. And so your, your maker is your, is your groom, right? It's the same understanding. You can see it in Jeremiah 31, Ezra 32, right, where this language is used. You can see it played out really back in Exodus because that's really kind of where this happens. When God covenants with his people at Mount Sinai, marriage is a covenantal relationship. That's where God covenants. I will be your God, you will be my people, Right? So this, this marriage picture has been around from the very beginning. If we keep going on into the New Testament, right? Paul explains in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about marriage that hey, one of the main points of marriage, marriage was designed as a picture of a reality, this covenantal reality of God's union with his people. He continues all the way through Revelation. So what's the significance of this particular way of describing God and who he is to us? Well, first and foremost, Jesus, in using this picture, is doing something very insignificant. He's not just picking a random image. When he says that he is the bridegroom, he is identifying himself as the one who throughout the whole Testament said, I'm your God, I am your bridegroom, right? He's identifying himself as Yahweh. This is declaring his divinity and who he is. Right? He didn't just pick out an example out of his head like I do when I'm up here. Right? This was very specific and intentional. Right? The God who said he's your bridegroom, I'm him. I'm him. So the first thing that he shows us through this is his identity. Right? And we're going to see this as we go through. He's going to get clearer, more and more clear about who exactly he is. And this is one of those ways he's revealing it even further to us. 
So it shows Jesus' identity. But where the real richness comes in, then, if Jesus is the bridegroom, if you've got a bridegroom, you've got to have a wedding. You've got to have a wedding. And understanding that this wedding picture is so incredibly helpful to understanding our life in this world. You guys remember back in the day when we used to go to like malls and there's the big map and there's like the star that you are here spot, right? If you don't know where you are, you get very disoriented, right? You think you're on the opposite end, something like that. It's the same way with kind of our place in history in terms of what God's doing. If we don't know where we are, if we don't know what's going on, where we are in the ark of redemption, we will misperceive things. We will misunderstand things. We will think things are other than they are. And this picture really beautifully helps us to see and understand this. But we've got to understand marriage in the cultural context here a little bit. Because if we just think about how marriage works for us today, we're going to miss some important points. So we're going to talk about it in, in three distinct stages. Right? There's, there's betrothal, preparation, and a wedding. Betrothal, preparation, and a wedding. So let's talk about betrothal. Right? I think our first instinct when we hear this is just to think like engagement. Right? This is the same kind of thing. We kind of use it interchangeably. But there's some unique characteristics to betrothal in Jesus' day that are very different than what we think of when we just think of engagement. First of all, uh, these were largely arranged marriages. Right? That the father of the groom would go find a bride for his, for his son, right? So that that's one dynamic. Another thing is that there would be this bride price. You can just find somebody and pick them. You had to, the groom's family then had to produce a certain financial incentive to the bride's family. And the point of this wasn't necessarily, it's not like paying for the bride. It's demonstrating the ability of that family, of that groom to care for that daughter, right? He wants to take this guy's daughter away, bring her into his home. The bride price was showing, hey, I have the means to provide and protect and care for and sustain your daughter if she comes and joins me. It was like a proof of concept, right? Like, I, I've got this. I've got the means to be able to do this. Another thing that's different and unique about betrothal was that it was binding. It was a legal thing. There was a covenant that went with betrothal. Right? You had, this was an actual formal ceremony where you became betrothed and you were, it was closer to marriage than it is to our idea of an engagement in terms of how, how binding it was. This is the relationship that Mary and Joseph were at when she conceives Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph's plan was what? To, to divorce her. That's the only way you could get out of a betrothal. You had to actually file for and get a divorce because you had covenanted together to do this. So it is a binding thing. And lastly, as part of this ceremony, there was a, a drinking of wine to seal this covenant, this betrothal covenant. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things there. Now let's take those and let's think about Jesus, the bridegroom. Okay? The father chooses a bride, right? God chooses a people. God chose a people for himself before the foundations of the world. He elects us. He chooses us. Right? Just like the father would choose a bride for his son. But just the choosing is not enough, right? There is this price that must be paid. The, the family, the groom's family has to prove that they can provide for, care for, sustain this woman in order for a betrothal to go forward. 
So the bride price must be paid. And what is the price that is paid for Christ's bride? Jesus' very life. Right? And if you think about what this bride price was, right? You're not paying for a wife. You are proving that you are willing and able to protect and provide and care for and do all that you are to do for that person. What does Jesus' bride price say about that? Right? He is willing to lay down his life to provide and to protect and to care for his bride. That's how willing he is. But then think about how powerful he is because the same one who lays that down as the price is able to take his life back up again. It's not some kind of impotent willingness. No, he can lay down that price and then he has the power to take his life back up again. There is no greater bride price that has ever been paid than the one that is paid in Jesus Christ. And of course, this betrothal is binding. When Jesus has done that for you, it is not broken. Jesus does not fail in his covenants. Never. He cannot fail in his covenants. He would be less than who he is if he ever did. This is why understanding the character of God is so important. Things like his immutability, the fact that he cannot change, means that he cannot violate what he has promised and what he has covenanted to do. Once you are betrothed to Christ, you are his, and he will not lose any that are given to him. And then this beautiful picture of, of drinking wine to seal this covenant. You guys remember, before Jesus went to the cross, he's having Passover with his disciples, and when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he gives them wine. And what is it? It's the wine of the new covenant. Just as wine sealed this betrothal covenant, Jesus gives us wine to seal his betrothal covenant, to lock it in, to say, this is binding, and here's the seal of it, right here, this wine. We're drinking this wine to seal the deal. Do you see the the beauty of this picture here? So so what's going on here? The, The betrothal time, that's when Jesus is on earth for his earthly ministry. That's what he's there to do. Right? He's there to lock up his bride, to do the betrothal thing, to covenant with, to pay the bride price and make her his. So let's circle back to the original question. Why don't you fast? Well, understand what's going on here, right? And especially understand our condition, right? Until you were betrothed, until you were, betrothed, until you were married in, in this culture, you were basically un- you were at your father's house. And you were there until you got married and left. What does our father's house look like outside of Christ? Our father's the devil outside of Christ. Scripture says that. We are under his authority and his sway. And how does he treat us? What are his intentions for us? He hates us. He steals, kills, lies, and destroys. That's what he does. So outside of Christ, this is where we're living. We are living in this house that is... Like, abusive isn't even a strong enough word. It is a house of death. Until Jesus shows up. He says, no, I am taking her. She is mine now. She is going to leave this this house of death, and I'm going to take her into my house of life. So Jesus showing up on the scenes for 
betrothal, this is a happy thing. This is an incredible development. But you're, you're sitting there. You don't know if anyone's ever going to come. You know, I got engaged to my wife because there were all sorts of appealing, wonderful things about her. We didn't have any of that, right? Like we didn't, we weren't real promising. There was nothing drawing. Like, so the, from, from a human perspective, we were absolutely destitute. We were, this is so utterly hopeless. And then Jesus shows up. Says, no, you're mine. And buys us with the price of his blood. Unites us to himself in a covenant that he will not dissolve. And seals it with the wine that he gives us. So the whole question about fasting, we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, right? Like they have the wrong idea about what fasting is, first and foremost. What fasting is for, fasting is something that you do when there is need and longing and sorrow. That's what it's for. That's what it expresses. It goes together with prayer. When we are struggling deeply with sin that, we, that seems to enslave us, that's a good time to fast. When you are grieving deeply, that's a good time to fast. When things are very bad in some sort of way and you really want and need the Lord to move, that's a good time to fast. Right? When the bridegroom is there is not the time of need and sorrow and longing. This is the time of celebration. Everything I've been needing and longing and sorrowful about is met in this man. And he's here. Right? When you get engaged, you don't, like, go put on sackcloth and ashes and and cry. You have a party. It's a good thing. It's a happy thing. And this time while Jesus is on earth in the flesh is this time of betrothal. He's here. The Messiah bridegroom has come. No, we're not fasting. We are feasting. That's the right response. If you know what is happening here, if you know who this man is, and if you know where you're living in God's redemptive ark. In a sense, to fast while Jesus is there would almost be an affront. If fasting belongs with grief and longing and need, the bridegroom, he banishes these things. It's almost like an offense to him, an insult to his provision and his sufficiency to do that while he's there. But if we keep looking at the verse, he says, he doesn't say fasting is done forever. He's saying there's going to come a time when his disciples will fast. And that moves us to kind of the next stage of, of the wedding. And that's the stage of preparation. You come, you have this betrothal. You celebrate it. It's this formal binding thing. It's happy. Everyone's great. And, and then you know what happens next? The groom leaves. He leaves. Now, this is not a leaving of an abandonment. Right? This is a leaving of preparation. Right? Once you got the bride price, you did this whole thing. Your next job, once you're betrothed, is to go back to your father's house don't think about real estate. You've got to think about real estate differently too, right? The way land was divided up in Israel is God divided the land when he gave it to them. You weren't just like buying and selling parcels of property. Your, your family had your allotment. So you would go back to your father's land and you would build your house. your either extension on the existing house or your house there to have a place to bring your bride to. And once your father was satisfied with what you'd prepared for your bride, then he'd say, all right, go get her, son. And then we have a wedding. 
That's how this worked. So the groom leaves. He's working on this house. He's working on this place for them to live. And the bride, in the meantime, is, is waiting, and, and her preparation is to stay ready. Right? A lot of you have been married here. Can you imagine not knowing when your wedding's going to be until you like hear the guy like coming down the road? I imagine most of you probably know would not like that. Probably planned for a significantly longer time than that for your wedding. But that's how this went, right? Like you didn't know when he was going to come back. And so the, the call to you is to stay ready. Prepare yourself for your husband. Stay ready. Stay looking. Stay longing. So we've left this time of Jesus' presence here, this time of betrothal, and we've moved into this new period of anticipation, of, of longing, of, of need. Right? And this is how engagement or betrothal works, right? Like, engagement or betrothal is not great on its own. It's great because of what it means it's going to. When an engagement doesn't lead to a wedding, it's kind of a sad thing, not a happy thing. And Jesus kind of said this on purpose. He leaves in order to make the wedding happen, to get everything in place so that the wedding can happen. John 16, 7 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's always, I mean, every time I read that, I'm like, really? I kind of feel like it'd be really great to have Jesus here. I would love to have Jesus here when I'm prepping my sermons. Like, this verse is weird, Jesus. Can you just help me out? When I'm counseling people, I don't know what to do. Jesus, can you just tell me? How many, how many, does that not sound great to have Jesus with you? It's a very unusual verse. If we don't understand it in this context, right? So it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right, so Jesus leaves and there's two things that happen. He goes to prepare things and then he sends his spirit to prepare us. So Jesus leaves and he gives his spirit. And his spirit is the one who works in us and prepares us, prepares the bride for the groom. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who keeps us faithful while we wait. He is the one who makes us holy and causes us to pursue righteousness, which is what we ought to be doing in the meantime, right? Staying faithful, pursuing holiness. And that's not something we do on our own. We've been given this helper who works it in us. So he leaves us. This is why Jesus can say he has to go away, but he also says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Because he leaves to go get things ready, but he gives us his spirit in the meantime to prepare us for the thing that we are all waiting for. So the bride stays ready. The bride, us, we stay ready by holding to the faith, continuing to trust in the promise of our bridegroom, right? And this could be hard, right? He came and made all these promises and then he left and we're waiting and life's just happening. And there's other guys out there or other gods if we're translating it, right? There's other things we could worship, other things we could run into. There's all sorts of things we could do. But what to prepare looks like means to stay faithful, to hold fast to the faith, and to pursue holiness and righteousness through the power of the Spirit who seals and sanctifies Jesus' bride. So that's what's going on with us. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's doing exactly what any other groom would be doing. He's preparing a place for his bride. John 14, 
says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. He tells us exactly why he leaves, right? He's going to prepare things for the wedding day to come. Another way we hear this expressed that's maybe not as directly clear, but is the idea of him preparing a kingdom for us and giving us the kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You can see this dynamic captured in that passage, right? We're waiting for something that that he is preparing. He's gone away to prepare this kingdom that he's going to give to us that we will receive. And what do we do in the meantime? Knowing that he is going to do this, what do we do? We offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Right? So this time, this is the time we live in. Right? We live in a different time period than Jesus' disciples in the time that this was happening. We live in this period of preparation. Jesus is not with us physically. He's gone to be with us. He's doing that preparation. He is with us by his spirit. Right? His spirit has sealed us. It's secured that union. Just because he's not here physically does not mean that things are any less certain for us. Right? But that spirit is also working in us, making us holy preparing us for the bridegroom. Right, so we are watching and waiting and longing for his return. We're pursuing faithfulness and holiness, not from a lack, not, not to make him love us, right? This is where legalism and stuff comes in, right? When I'm trying to make myself good enough so I can catch Jesus' eye. Like, no, Jesus loved and you were, you were an utter mess and brought nothing to the table. And you know what he did before he left? He left you beautiful dresses and beautiful jewelry, and he gave you all the goods to look beautiful. It all comes from him. That's the way it looks. So we put on things that came from him, and that's how we're adorned for our bridegroom. We're adorned in fine clothes and jewels that he himself provides. Now, of course, the waiting is hard, though. Waiting is always hard. Anybody like waiting for anything? No, universal. We all hate waiting. We don't want to wait for anything. We want things to happen when they do. We've got to remember that we wait here. We we wait back in our old father's house. We wait in this world that's under a curse, where there are spiritual forces of darkness that hate us. We live in our flesh that leads us to do sinful, stupid things that hurt us, and where the world pushes us to be unfaithful to our bridegroom. That's where we live. So the waiting is very hard. Because of us, because of the world, and because of Satan. It is a hard time to wait. And that's why our experience of it is the way that it is, right? The Christian life is not easy, is it? No, it's not. And so it has sorrow, right? It has longing. It has trouble, even though we have the betrothal of Jesus behind it that promises this great thing in the future, this particular period is hard. And so this is an appropriate time, again, to fast. This is that time Jesus talked about, that time in between his two comings. This is the time when his disciples fast because it's hard. 
And there are sorrowful things as we watch like the curse still wreak its havoc. As we sin, see sin in ourselves and we watch ourselves be unfaithful to the bridegroom who has done so much for us. These things should break our hearts. They should drive us to our knees in prayer. At a time to even give up food because we so want these things to change. You know, it's kind of beautiful though is that It's our season of fasting, but there's a way in which Jesus is actually fasting as well during this time of waiting. In Luke's account of giving them the Lord's Supper, he said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus partaking of the Passover in which he instituted the Lord's Supper said, this is the last time I'm eating of this until I eat it with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm fasting too during this time of preparation. But church, the time of fasting is going to give way ultimately and finally to feasting again. So on the day the Father approves of what's been prepared, he says, it's go time, son. The groom would go and collect his bride for the wedding. This is what all the waiting, all the longing has been for. This is the culmination point that everything has been waiting for. Whatever happens during our engagement, right? We rest on the promises of the betrothal, but we are looking forward to this, to this wedding, to being finally and fully united with the bridegroom. And these are the two things that that give us our bearings during this time of waiting that can be so disorienting and so confusing. Because right? sometimes life in this world does not feel like you are betrothed to one who has these limitless resources and cares for you perfectly. Does it? If you're honest, is that what it feels like in this world? It's happening, he's doing it. But it often does not feel like that. But remembering his promises and his covenant to us and looking forward to what this is ultimately going to look like at the wedding anchor us and help us to be steadfast in our time of waiting. And we get little glimpses, right? Little bits to hold on to of what this is going to look like. Look at Revelation 19, 7 through 9. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It's this beautiful picture of of this, this heavenly wedding when Christ comes again. The old is done away with. All things are made new. And Jesus Weds his bride. And, and the, the picture of her is beautiful. It was granted to her, given. Granted is something that's given to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Here we have this picture of like Jesus gave them the, these, these good works, this, this righteousness to be clothed in. Ultimately his righteousness, but ultimately that flowing out and actually doing Acts of righteousness is waiting as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And now we finally see her not in this, you know, not the way we look now. 
sitting in plastic chairs in a gym. Like we don't look very glorious. But when he comes again, we're exposed for what we really are, what he has made us spiritually. And it's this, fine clothes, bright and pure, radiant. You know that moment when you're at a wedding and and you see the bride, right? It's always awesome, right? She's hidden behind the door, nobody sees her, and then boom, and she's brilliantly beautiful. That's the sort of image here, right? All this preparation has been done, and now there's the reveal. Wow, this is what God was doing through his spirit. Look at this bride that he has sanctified, that he has clothed. Do you remember what she looked like before? It's a mess. There was nothing, and now look who she is. How in the world, how's this even the same person? Because of Jesus. And then we can kind of continue on, right? So there's the wedding, but so Jesus was getting this place ready. So we have the wedding ceremony. Where are we going home to? Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We saw at the wedding supper, we saw the preparation of the bride that God did through his spirit. Now we see the preparation that Jesus has been making. Right, to take a world cursed by sin, utterly broken, ruled by Satan, to completely, like, just burn it down and build it back into this glorious thing where there is not even the slightest remnant of sin or suffering left. In it or in you. That, 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 that verse 4 is just, it's so easy to read it, but it is absolutely stunning. Like, to actually consider a reality where, where this is true. Every tree, tree, tear gone from every eye. And there are so many things in this world that are worth weeping over. If we were to see all that happens in this place, like, we would be devastated. We'd be utterly crushed by it. And, and there's going to be nothing left to shed tears over. It's going to be gone. Death shall be no more. I'm getting older, and I know more and more people who are dying. Like the last five years, it just feels like it's just it's a lot of people. Um, and that's horrible. That's, it's not, that is a fruit of sin. We're never, as Christians, we're not happy about death. Right? There's this kind of idea that, oh, as Christians, oh, yeah, death is just the next thing. No, like we were not made to die. We are supposed to live. That's what we are created for. Death is bad. Death is from sin. And it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. There won't be any mourning. Nothing to grieve anymore. There is so much to grieve here. There will be nothing left to grieve no crying, no pain. Maybe 
maybe I'm also getting older, so I feel this, and everything hurts. I look at something wrong and things hurt, right? That's the funny kind of pain, right? But there's a lot of real pain that a lot of you experience all the time in all sorts of ways, right? Every little ache, every little pain, and those more serious ones that you live with all the time that people don't see, but that you're just, have that low-grade suffering all the time. Gone. Gone. It does not exist anymore in this place that Jesus has prepared for you. The former things have passed away. The former things are everything that sin touched, everything that was corrupted, everything that dies, everything that hurts. It will literally be impossible to ever be disappointed. Nothing will ever fail to live up to expectations. We, we can't even fathom the glory of this place that Christ is preparing for us now. So church, in light of that, in light of such a strong, firm promise and commitment from the bridegroom who's made it, in light of the the price that was paid to secure your betrothal, hold fast. Hold fast. Don't run to other suitors. Hold fast. Beloved, in light of what he is preparing for you, in light of the eternal weight of glory that is yours by virtue of being his, hold fast. There is nothing in this world worth compromising this for. Nothing. And let me end with a reminder that your holding fast will ebb and flow. Right? You know this. You live here. You know what that's like. But his will not. His will not. Ephesians 5, we, we think about this passage in terms of marriage, but Paul says at the end that this is actually really, ultimately this is about Christ and the church. And so I want to read this part, but think about this as Christ towards you, not as all the ways that your husband fails, because every husband fails this. Listen to this. Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church. Now now listen to the way he describes Christ loving the church. This is how he loves you. This is what he does for you. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, set her apart, make her holy. Having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. You don't cleanse yourself, he cleanses you. You go on being utterly filthy, dirty, disgusting to the touch. And he doesn't even say, he doesn't say clean yourself up. He comes to you and cleanses you. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I know day to day, if you're anything like me, I fail so much. I chase so many stupid things. I pursue unrighteousness for the dumbest reasons. I sin countless times, and it's so stupid, but I do. But the truth is, even even somebody like me 
Jesus is able to present me in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, that I might be holy and without blemish. And he does that for you too. So yes, you hold fast, but that's not what ultimately wins the day. What wins the day is that he holds you fast. Right? He is going to bring you into that place he's prepared. And he is the one who's going to prepare you for it. And you may not feel like this right now. I sure don't. But this is the spiritual reality of what Jesus Christ does for us. When you come before the throne of the God of the universe, this is what you'll look like. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Paul goes on and he says, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. He loves us as he does his very self. Our union with him is so much so that that our good is tied up and wrapped up in his. That is how closely we are united to him. And he cannot fail himself and because he cannot fail himself, he will not fail us. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious reality. Lord, to be brought from where we, are, we were to where we are is just stunning and remarkable, the way that you have loved us, what you have done for us. But it's so easy for us to lose sight of it, so easy for us to see it lightly. And I pray that you would not allow that to happen this morning. With the eyes of faith, help us to see, help us to look back and to see clearly all that he has done to betroth us to himself. And let us revel and stand firm and confidently in those promises. And then also give us the eyes to look forward by faith into what he is preparing for us. What it will be his joy to give to us. And Lord, cause us to rejoice now in in this season where we experience these two realities, the hardship, the difficulty, the, the mourning, the crying, the weeping, but also the sanctifying goodness of the work of your spirit and his comfort in us. And preserve us and protect us through that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we get the privilege of enjoying the Lord's Supper this morning, the supper that he gave as the seal of our betrothal, right? And so if you are here this morning, your faith and trust is in Christ alone for salvation. You've been baptized into his church. This meal is for you, right? This is part of the way he reaffirms to you that you are his, right? He cares for you in the doubts and the struggles of this world, and this is one of the ways that he does. So if that's you this morning, as we sing. You can go and receive the elements at the black tables towards the back. The purple cups have grape juice, bread's underneath. The clear cups have wine, bread's underneath. So you just need one stack. We'll finish this song and I'll come up and we'll receive this supper together. Uh, if your faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ, uh, this meal is not for you. It's not because we want to withhold benefit from you, uh, but it would not benefit from you. It, it only benefits when it's eaten in faith. And we don't want you to think that you have something that you do not. But I also want to encourage you This preparation is 
part of it is getting the place ready for us in the future, but the other part of it is gathering his bride, right? He is still bringing people in to make up that number that is his. So if your faith and trust has not been in him, uh, this can still be your reality, even if it is not up until this point. And that's what we long for and pray for for you. So church, let's stand, sing, receive the elements, and then we'll receive the supper together after this song.
church during this time of preparation. Christ has left in a sense, but he has not abandoned us. He has given us his spirit, and he is the one who keeps and sustains us until he brings us finally home. And one of the ways he does that is through things we call means of grace, things that he has instituted that sustain us along the way as his spirit works through them. And what we hold in our hands is one of those, this supper that he instituted. And it calls us back to a number of things we already talked about. First and foremost, looking back. Right? It calls us back to the price that was paid, the bride price that was spent for you. That price is reflective of your groom's ability to care and provide for you. And the price that was shed for you is what we hold in your hands. Nothing less than the body and blood of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the degree of provision and care that is yours as the betrothed of Jesus Christ. It is more than sufficient for anything that you are called to walk through, anything you will have to endure until he brings you home. So it calls you back to your bride price. It also reminds you of the wine that would seal the betrothal. Right? This care, this provision is not, uh, it's not probationary. He's not waiting to see if you hold up your end of the bargain. He has covenanted himself to you. And because he has done that, because you are his, you can never not be ever again. And the wine is his, is the seal of that new covenant that he will not fail. But then of course, it doesn't just take our eyes back. It lifts our eyes forward as well to the feast we wait for and that we long for, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when, when we will receive not just a piece of bread, not just a drink of wine, but a feast, glasses of wine, served by the pierced hands of Jesus to his beloved, radiant, glorious bride that he's brought safely home. This is to call your mind and your heart to all of these things. May the Spirit do it as we take the bread now and do this in remembrance of Christ.
Likewise, the cup that is the seal of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, do this in remembrance of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that while it's every single one of our cries that I believe help my unbelief, um, that, that to that cry you answer, absolutely I will. You give grace upon grace upon grace to sustain us and to keep us and, and keep us mindful of that. We walk through hard things. And when things are hard and when they are dark, it's easy to forget your love for us. It's easy to forget your care for us. It's, it's hard to look forward and up. And so we just commit ourselves to you. If we make it, it is by your care. And because it's because of your care, we will make it surely. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in grace and peace. Behold the Lamb who bears